let's just say if you've got a patent on something that you can't detect the infringement of, well, why get a patent in the first place? Maybe keep it trade secret. Maybe keep it know-how, which is a bit different than trade secret. Or maybe it's a small subset of trade secret law. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Introducing an exclusive new webinar series on advancing AI. It's available only online. It won't be released through the podcast, but you can join live to these webinars. So join us over breakfast from February to April by signing up in the link in the show notes. We will be interviewing leaders in the data and AI space. They will guide you through the hype and maze of technology to achieve the business transformation we all want from AI. Whether you're looking to leverage AI to optimize the customer experience or to improve your business operations, this series underpins the core elements crucial to your company's AI strategy. Featuring guests from around the globe, including people from companies like NAB, Finair, Woodside, etc. Check out the schedule, sign up through the link in the show notes, or visit datafuturology.com for more information. I'm super excited to bring you this new series. Hope to see you there. Welcome to another episode of Data Futurology. Thank you so much for joining us. As you know, in Data Futurology, we talk about the leadership and strategy components that are relevant for leaders in machine learning, data science, and AI. And today we're going to be talking about commercializing your ideas, what type of IP intellectual property strategy you should have behind that. What does it take to take new ideas to market? And I know it's a, it's a really important area that a lot of people have been asking us to cover. And it's something where Kevin and I were discussing before. The companies that are less sophisticated are thinking about it too late. Generally, sort of more sophisticated companies are thinking about it early. There's a lot of questions and a lot of possibly a lot of fog for people in the data science space around this particular topic. So today we wanted to cover it all and make sure that we get your questions in. For that, we are joined by Kevin Buckley. He's the founder at Tory Pines Law Group. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Uh, doing well. I hope that... Uh... You weren't too addicted to the Facebook news feed, because I understand you don't have it anymore. <laughs> yeah, basically, so, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, th thanks for creating this forum uh, again, and uh, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And and definitely discussing um, the the IP strategy or the place that IP strategy has in life sciences and AI. It's it's such a big topic. Uh, I was wondering if we could start right right at the top, maybe with the commercialization process. And um, from your experience, how have you seen that play out for for companies in this space? Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, IP, as you can imagine, is uh, one of the first things that uh, we counsel our clients to focus on. And as part of the commercialization process, um, it is essential that you have solid IP protection to get to market. Uh, you're not going to get the investment, you're not going to be acquired, and you're certainly not going to be able to license something that you don't have. So um, the way that 
we think of the commercialization process is just after conception. Uh, we focus on IP, and I, I tend to I tend to focus on five different buckets uh, a lot. So the commercialization process for our clients, we describe it in the sense of IP licensing, which can include uh, freedom to operate analysis, uh, in and out licensing of inventions. Uh, then you focus on the funding aspect. Uh, how do you get money to support this IP procurement, the licensing regime? Uh, do you know if something is overfunded or underfunded in the market? If it's underfunded, uh, you're probably going to get, uh, well, a higher chance of, of getting an investment. If it's overfunded, well, you have more competition there. Fourth bucket is regulatory, and that's really important. Uh, in the United States, we, we also uh, include reimbursement in that. Essentially, the federal government and insurance companies working with the innovator to get their product paid for. And then finally, the, the post-market aspects of this. Uh, this is mostly litigation avoidance, but it could also include uh, follow-on safety and efficacy studies related to the regulatory process and any number of transactions that would uh, occur uh, after your product is, is on the market. So that in a nutshell, those five buckets are what we focus on with our clients. IP is first and foremost. I love it, and uh, we we might we might start there. Um, and yeah, I really like that. There's the, the different stages for us to to dive into. Um, so let's let's start with with IP. Uh, and um, if you can tell me about sort of IP in in general in this space, and uh, and then we can take it from there. Okay, so uh, IP um, does not exist in a vacuum. That's what law professors love to say. Uh, mm -hmm. IP affects so many different other areas of law and business and science uh, to some degree, but also different laws, business and science also impact IP law. So it is, it is completely integrated with every other facet of law. So um, luckily, uh, what we've done for our clients uh, in the recent past, uh, we have utilized a number of different um, legal strategies to get, let's just say, for example, Series ABC uh, investment funding, uh, 510K approvals, PMA approvals, or I should say clearances in the United States uh, for medical devices, especially uh -huh. software as a medical device. Yes. Uh, right? And, and so SAMD uh, is an important thing to focus on. And, and this is really the bread and butter uh, when we work for data scientists. Yeah. So um, the, the IP itself can be characterized in a number of ways. And really importantly, you have to decide early on whether you want to patent something, uh -huh. which eventually publishes, uh, and then you go through a negotiation with a patent examiner, and then hopefully eventually you get an issued patent. Okay, that's great, and you can protect your invention for a total of 20 or 21 years, depending on what strategy you follow. But the real question is, if you're going to enforce a patent, uh -huh. you need to be able to detect the infringement of it. Yeah. Well, if you're because not it's, it's, up, it's up to the organization that submits the patent, 
to to then enforce it, right? That's right. That's that's the value of it. And and to think about investors and acquirers, that's the value to them. Can they um, mm-hmm. uh, either get rights to or purchase uh, a patent that they can then enforce? So that's really the value. Well, let's just say if you've got a patent on something that you can't detect the infringement of, well, why get a patent in the first place? Maybe keep it trade secret. Maybe keep it know-how, which is a bit different than trade secret, or maybe it's a small subset of trade secret law. So early on, you need to decide, what do you want to do? If you've got something like a score, a ranking system, uh, some kind of um, indication that an end user can perceive. And as a data scientist, you know that can be um, contouring an anomaly on an image. Uh-huh. It could be a score, you know, a discrete number provided to an end user. It can be a listing or ranking of things provided to the end user. These are things because an end user is able to view it or use it, you can detect the infringement if you get a claim to it. If this is something, however, that is on a back-end server, it's on the cloud, Uh it just is something on the back-end that is your engine but doesn't necessarily provide an output, you might consider keeping that a trade secret. Nobody Uh will really be able to um, uh, see what you're doing on the back-end. They'll eventually see a product of, of some level, but that process you might not want to patent. You might want to keep it on the back end, keep it unpublished, and you could protect it forever if you really think about that. Yeah. The the real double-edged sword is if somebody patents that algorithm or the network or some kind of a uh, process, they can patent it around you. That's that's uh-huh. unlikely for most of our clients, but that is kind of the, the trade-off. Do you patent have it publish and get something that has a finite 20 or 21 year limited lifetime? Or do you have a trade secret that could have perpetual Mm. lifetime of enforcement so long as you have all the confidentiality and employment agreements in place? That's really the IP decision you need to make very early on. So uh, if you want me to get into the patent process, I can do that too, that's complex. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I did I did want to ask if if you had um, any uh, examples that you could share about, um, and obviously to only to the detail that that you can share. I guess that's um, hopefully needless, needless to say. But if you can share about organizations that went one way and then another organization that went the other way uh, with with this uh, decision around their their IP. Sure, sure. So um, there, uh, in fact, well. I can give you an example of one client doing both things. So, because mm-hmm. uh, this, this is pretty interesting. One of the um, clients we have, so we've assisted one client um, for many, many years. And um, we started developing their IP portfolio. Uh, that IP portfolio then uh, eventually led in time to getting regulatory approval. Uh, so 510K de novo pathway in the United States. Uh, and the technology relates to detecting anomalies in medical images. And those anomalies can be any number of things. 
for instance, uh, one of the anomalies can be cancer. So a cancerous lesion or tumor in the image itself. So you can imagine that if the user uh, of this SAMD, software as a medical device, um, is seeing a contour on the image circling the anomaly, well, that physician might take a closer look at that circle or, uh, in this case, a score, a number, zero out of 100, mm -hmm. 100 being really suspicious, zero not oh. being very suspicious at all, uh, or, or both, both the contour and that number, and just take a quick look at it. May, oh. Maybe that is something that um, uh, is indicative of cancer in the patient. So this is something that we've patented. Uh, uh -huh. We have a claim to not only a system for contouring uh, the anomaly, uh, but a system for providing the output of the score, uh, uh -huh. as well as methods of diagnosing uh, utilizing the contouring and scoring aspect of the SAMD. So that was a great, and, and so this company that we've been helping for so many years, they can detect the infringement of that with any number of their competitors. Yeah. So that's a really interesting example on how to patent uh, or, or when to patent. Then on the trade secret end, um, there are algorithms. So you can imagine that um, many of our clients that are data driven, uh, they focus on inputs and engine and then outputs. Uh -huh. Sometimes there really is no output. Sometimes the engine itself is where uh, the value is uh, in, a, in a certain system. Doesn't necessarily generate any output that is detectable that uh -huh. you would file a, a patent claim on, but it's something that does something very valuable. Uh, we've uh, kept that, uh, or we, we've uh, advised the client to keep the discrete system that is the engine. Um, and what it does is provides, uh, well, it integrates a variety of combinations of data sets. Uh, there are pre-processing steps of those data, uh, and that is... Um, essentially chewed on by a deep learning algo, uh, which does something which eventually provides output. Yeah, but not, not directly, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. yeah. Not directly. And, and it's, a, it's a fascinating engine huh. that this client has developed, uh, novel and non-obvious, but because you can't detect the infringement of it, they're going to keep it a trade secret. And, yes. and it's a highly valuable part of their their business plan. So that's kind of an idea of generally where we go with our clients in this in this field. That's fantastic. Yes, because then um, in the second in the second example, because the algorithm is not interacting uh, directly with with customers and not showing the outputs directly, then it can it can definitely stay hidden and, and quite quite valuable. Um, it can be worked on. Um, that's that's yeah that's really um, really interesting. I I'm yeah I'm fascinated about your your experience also on software as a medical device on on telehealth. Um, yeah, I really like the fact that you're you're in in that space. I find it I find it fascinating. 
in the case of the your first example with the with the contouring and the scoring in the imaging, um, so to to what extent does can that um, can that stop from other other people from doing something similar? So if somebody if if a competitor came up with a contouring or or their own score, where is the line of um, of not not only protection but the line where this organization should act on on their uh, pattern? Yeah. Well, that, that's, that second part of that question is, is really complex. And a lot of that has to do with resources. Mm -hmm. uh, you can imagine lit litigation and enforcing the patents is an entirely yeah. separate question, and it's, a, and it's an integral part of a very expensive business strategy. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that, that's really where it is. With respect to the um, patent claiming question, uh, it really, the answer goes to how broad you can claim the invention. Yeah. So the laws in all of the countries where we file patent applications, all of these countries have different laws and mm -hmm. all of these countries have different regulations. So you can imagine that. Um, OK, so in the United States, there's a, uh, a famous case called the Alice case. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a uh, I believe a 2014 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. And it really narrowed what was patent eligible so okay your audience might you might not even know <laughs> and sometimes i get confused yeah. it, it, it's probably a good idea to talk about what is patenting and how and how do you do it so again five buckets i don't know why i do this maybe it goes back to my adjunct professor days in in university but uh Getting a patent requires five different things. Here are my five buckets for getting a patent. So patent eligibility. Is this invention patentable at all? Yeah. So maybe the best way to answer that question is what isn't patent eligible? Uh -huh. so a mathematical formula is not patent eligible. Uh, a product of nature, you know, a, a plant, for example, that it, it is uh, existing in nature yeah. is not patent eligible. I mean, you can imagine a lot of things that aren't patent eligible. Okay. So get something uh, on in a patent application that is patent eligible. That's bucket one. Novelty. Every patent, uh, every issued patent has to be new. Uh, and if there's any reference prior to the filing of your patent application that um, is essentially exactly what you're claiming, well, then that claim isn't novel. You're going to have to do something with that claim to make it novel. You're going to have to work around that reference. Third thing is you have to be not obvious. So even if you're novel, you have to be not obvious. And in the United States, that means an examiner can combine two or more references and say, hey, if, if, this, uh, if, if you're claiming, and I just heard this analogy recently, if you're claiming a man wearing a shirt and pants. Okay, well, one reference has a man with a shirt on, uh, but, uh, you know, not necessarily pants. Okay, there's one reference. Then the examiner says, well, this, this guy in another magazine, this man's wearing pants. Well, the examiner can say, well, this man wearing a shirt and this man wearing a pants, we can cite those against this claim that you're filing a patent application surrounding and it's obvious 
it's obvious. You cannot claim a man wearing a shirt and pants because one of skill in the art would have put those references together. Yeah. Okay? So you have to go over multiple references and that becomes kind of a cat and mouse game. It's, it's yes. really a game. All right. And then the, the, the fourth and fifth buckets are a bit more challenging. Enablement is number four. Mm-hmm. Possession of the invention is number five. Mm-hmm. Enablement is, are you teaching one of skill in the art how to make and use the invention without undue experimentation? So it's, it's a drafting problem. And you have to, in your patent application, show that to get a patent. The fifth thing, possession of the invention. If you're claiming the sun, the moon, the earth, and the stars, you're not going to get a patent on it. So you have to show within the specification of the patent itself. So the you know the first 50 pages of a, of a patent application, if it's provided in those first 50 pages, the claim has to go back to that somewhere. You have to show that you are in possession of that claimed invention. The In other words, the claims have to relate to the specification. So the, that's a that's a second drafting problem. So so those are the five buckets. But to really answer your question on you know how broadly can you claim these things? Uh, first of all, you have to be within patent eligibility. Yeah. Then, if you're if you're claiming, and this is really critical, if you're claiming a technical solution to a technical problem, mm-hmm. you're most likely going to get an issued claim. Yep. If, you're, if you're claiming something that a human being could do on his own or her own without computational power, without multiple CPUs, without mm-hmm. multiple GPUs, if you're claiming something like a business method or uh, an algorithm for uh, creating some output uh, based on various input. Well, if a human mind can do that, or if, you, if a person can do that with their hands, you're p- probably not going to get an issued patent claim in the United States. Uh, Europe, on the other hand, you have a shot. You have a better shot even in Australia. Yeah. So it, it's, it is really a patchwork of laws and regulations, really hard to get a, um, a patent related to software in the United States. Surprisingly, it's a bit easier in mm. Europe based uh. on this Alice decision, which really clamped down on things in the United States. Uh, and then there, it's just a patchwork of laws and regs throughout the world. So the strategy of when to sue or not to sue, above and beyond the money and the resources, yeah. is what is the scope of your claim? If you've got a broad claim in Japan, mm. uh, sue as many people as you can if you can afford it. Yeah. If you've got a narrow claim in the United States, well, how many people are infringing? You've got to do that calculus when you're filing for the patent uh, itself from the very beginning. Uh, but then also you have to figure out if you've got a relatively narrow claim, you know, how much money are you willing to put into this with the risk of losing your patent infringement case. Patent infringement cases are millions of dollars. And um, before before we, we move into onto licensing and funding, which I'm I'm really curious about, I wanted to ask you about the um, the point that you made about if somebody can do it with their hands, then it's mm-hmm. it's unlikely to get a patent. Um, how does that how does that work in the case of the uh, the 
imaging, so the detection of cancer in an image, where, and the reason why I ask is um, thinking about the fact, and obviously this happens a lot in, in data science and AI, where somebody can do the work for one image, 10 images, 100 images, they can do that by hand. And, yeah. and uh, obviously in this case, a specialist would, would detect um, um, at least most of the, most of the cancer in the, in the images. Um, the AI definitely creates a, uh, a standardized approach and, and ideally combining the knowledge of, of multiple experts. But is there an argument to say an expert could do this by hand, sort of one, one at a time? Yeah, and, and that's the fight we often have. So you can imagine that, uh, let's just, okay, the medical image. Yep. And, and, and an analogy is any large data set. You, you can imagine that a medical image can be a two-dimensional image, which is uh, high-res or low-res X-ray. So a number of pixels per square inch or per square area, uh, depending on where your audience is. Um, you could also uh, have a three-dimensional layering of medical images. And you, you can imagine that the number of pixels or voxels that you're looking at is something that uh, machine learning and deep learning are very good at. Uh, they're very good at um, uh, modeling uh, and um, providing an output based on the uh, analysis, the, the DL or ML analysis of those pixels or voxels. But if you're getting into, so the analogy can be extended. So any data set where you're combining, let's just say you combine uh, the medical image with additional data. Let's just say you're looking at um, um, a genomics. Uh, so you have DNA associated with a certain patient. You have a medical image associated with the same patient. And you go on and on and on. So you're looking at genotype and phenotype, which is, is uh, the medical image related to a man or a woman? Mm. How old is the man or the woman? Um, uh, and uh, where is the man or woman from? Is this uh, a, a Japanese man or is this a South African woman? You can imagine that um, the algorithm is going to be looking at image, genotype, phenotype, and combining those different data in a way which is probably unpredictable. So you can, you can have a physician look at any number of things, uh, but to combine them is exceedingly difficult. Hmm. Uh, it, so I don't think you would find many physicians able to read a medical image do the genomic analysis and combine that with some kind of a trained algo mm. to generate that kind of output that really does require a computer, yeah. uh, some kind of technical feature uh, to provide that output. So if, if you're looking at a data set of 100 things, whatever that is, you can do, you can do that by hand. Uh, and so you're probably not going to get an issued patent claim if you're limiting that claim or, or maybe maybe the best way to look at it, if it's so broad that the technical feature can include 
doing it by hand. So you really need to narrow these claims mm. to something which is computer implemented for sure, but also needs that horsepower to generate the output. That, yes. That's really where we focus our claims with our clients. And that is successful throughout the world. And it's, it's interesting, the harmonization now, uh, and it's, it's totally unintentional, but this technical solution to a technical problem, you gotta be technical. So yeah. you can't use your hands, you can't type something in, do it in your head to have that technical solution. Mm. Uh, it, you, you have to have the, the horsepower, the technical horsepower, uh, and this really did start in Europe and is now getting implemented, again, totally inadvertently in the United States. We're focused on technical solutions to technical problems. Interesting. Uh, that is, yeah, that is really, really interesting. I love the, uh, the, the fact that in the, in the combination is, is one of the key, key parts that it's more than what I guess one person could, could reasonably do in a reasonable amount of time, that's um, that's great. So let's uh, let's go into onto licensing. Um, could you tell me about the your um, thoughts, perspective on licensing, and then and then we can uh, touch on funding. Yeah, absolutely. So so the the licensing uh, aspect of the commercialization process it, it's really fun because of course you have some uh, IP already generated. So either you've protected something by way of patenting it, or you have a trade secret protected, some kind of know-how. Well, the, the licensing aspect, it, it works hand in hand, as you can imagine with IP. Typically what we do is we find out if our clients need to in-license something that is blocking our client from getting a patent uh, claim issued or an invention marketed. So uh, you can imagine that uh, getting patent claims is kind of like a wedding cake. So the uh, oldest claim would be at the bottom big layer of a wedding cake. Uh, our clients might come in and have narrower claims, but they are improvements on that foundational layer of the wedding cake. And you can imagine that as uh, yeah. competitors continue to generate more and more improvements, narrower and narrower claims, well, at the top of the wedding cake is a super specific invention. It's narrower, but it relies on the broader yep. basis of the wedding cake below. To be able to market and commercialize that narrow patent on top, you gotta get a license to something below it. Uh -huh. So let's uh -huh. just say somebody that precedes you has a very broad patent claim, uh, and there, that's the bottom layer of the wedding cake. Well, if you're all the way up, up on top, you might have to find who owns the claims that you would be infringing uh, by marketing your narrow patent claim, that, that invention which is claimed in that very narrow claim. Yeah. So you need licenses to everything below you. Mm. So, so that's really the first analysis that we do. The, the interesting part about this, mm. I think, is when you, when you really wrap this into the regulatory environment, let's just say you're gonna go into an abbreviated uh, regulatory pathway and you are going to be relying on somebody else's safety and efficacy data so that you get either cleared or approved 
by the FDA or the, the equivalent of the FDA throughout the world. Well, typically, if you're going to rely on somebody else's safety and efficacy data, mm. they pretty typically have a patent out there that covers it. And you're going to have to rely on that for um, as a predicate device so that you can get cleared or approved in the FDA or its worldwide equivalents. So mm -hmm. not only are you looking at licensing kind of, okay, well, what do I have to get in so that I can use my invention without infringing somebody, but in the regulatory space, well, if I'm gonna be using somebody else's patented invention as a predicate, do I want to, you know, do I want to go down that regulatory pathway where the first sale I make after it's approved, I'm infringing somebody's patent on the predicate device? Well, that, that's bad form. So you want to take a look, not only am I infringing somebody, do I need to get a license for that patent, but how do I avoid stepping on people's toes in the regulatory process as well? All right, that's the defensive way to look at licensing. The offensive way is, okay, now I've got this patent or I've got a patent pending invention. How am I going to um, leverage that and seek royalties or licensing fees from uh -huh. parties that want to utilize my technology? Okay, yeah. assuming that you have freedom to operate, you've gotten all the licenses and you can sub-license uh, the inventions uh, if you are going to be infringing them and you get a license to them. Can you extract value from collaborators uh, or um, uh, other third parties to get royalties? Mm -hmm. So the broader the claims you get in your patent application, the more valuable it is from a licensing perspective. So uh, you can imagine that all of these license agreements, non-exclusive, exclusive, worldwide or isolated by country or uh, cut up by field, uh, there are any number of ways to skin that cat, uh, but that's from an offensive strategy. So what we typically do is we guide our clients on looking at what needs to be in licensed and what can be out licensed and how to maximize the value both incoming and outgoing. That's great. That is great. That's a really handy way to, to look at it. And I think, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people working in data science should should really consider this because I think a lot of times we possibly don't give ourselves enough credit maybe <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, we, we think, oh, this is all open source. I'm just, I'm just using uh, what's out there, but there's, um, there's a lot of innovation that happens uh, in the solving of the problems, which, which can be, um, which could be a good candidate for, for a patent. Well, here, and here's, here's really kind of the touchstone. If, if anybody in your audience is going to be patenting something and uh, they're going to seek a license or, or be acquired or seek an investment, mm. what you don't want to do, you don't want an investor, a potential investor, to identify a patent which, which you haven't considered and they say, hey, have you considered this patent? Are you infringing that or not? Mm. Well, if, if you're getting that question from an investor... Uh, or a potential investor, you're already starting off on the wrong foot. Yeah. You need to identify whether you have freedom to operate, whether you need a license to actually be able to fully market your invention. You don't want to get caught flat-footed 
uh, and you certainly don't want a potential investor to identify something for you and surprise you. That's a pro tip right there. Yeah, <laughs> do, do your homework. <laughs> um, your homework. Tell me, tell me about the, the funding perspective. I was curious to hear um, the perspectives of overfunding and underfunding, um, but, but if we can start with your general thoughts on, on funding. Yeah, so uh, we've had you know really good fortune to have worked with investors. You know, some some of these people are say a wealthy physician or a wealthy businessman, an individual, all the way up to multi-billion-dollar venture funds. And uh, you can imagine that everybody within that spectrum of small to big, they operate very differently. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, a um, seed investor, pre-seed investor, angel investor. There's any number of ways to, to say that. The small, the small investor, uh, they look at things uh, as um, uh, an investment to grow tenfold, hopefully, uh, something that they uh, don't really expect to see a success rate more than one in 10. So they might uh, put uh, 10 bets down and they want to see one of them succeed. Uh, the more institutional investors, they take a uh, much broader approach, and those investors are looking to fit in the different pieces of a puzzle. So uh-huh. if they can invest in or get rights to a piece of the puzzle that fits everything together. Uh-huh. And- they can corner that whole market on that hundred piece puzzle. And if anybody in the audience is, is puzzle piece number 100 out of 100, the investor has consolidated all 99 pieces and you're the last piece to put in to corner the market. Well, you're a very valuable investment. (laughs) This is what you you want to find out. You you want to be able to do some, a bit of an uh, analysis to figure out where you are in the puzzle, where you are in a certain process, a stream for an investment. And if you're talking to pre-seed, seed angel, uh, you're probably not gonna see much of a pattern. You're gonna see more of a shotgun approach and you're not gonna be able to glean where that investor might be strategically collecting their investments and seeing maybe a a big bigger value based on that shotgun. Uh, but the more on the other end of the spectrum, you can find out what certain investors have uh, in their portfolio already. Uh, if they are focused on something like uh, the intersection of artificial intelligence uh, and drug development. Mm-hmm. Well, you can see that if, if they have, uh, you know, go to Crunchbase, uh, or, or go to, uh, I mean, there are any number of um, websites or organizations that, that list uh, what they found as, as uh, Series A, B, or C uh, uh-huh. investment funding. See if a in certain investor is investing in a certain field, a certain technology, uh, or a certain sector. If they're getting into uh, some kind of, you know, in this, in this hypothetical, developing drugs using AI, if they've already got uh, a lot of the basic AI, the deep learning, machine learning, uh, all the nets uh, through their investments, maybe they're looking for something else. Maybe 
uh, it's computer vision, maybe it's 3D modeling, which is the sweet spot for that investor. You can find that out. And that is really where I'm getting to. If, if something is under invested, you're that last piece of the puzzle. Mm. You're valuable. You want to find out using your own due diligence how to approach the invest, how to approach the investor. But if you're finding that, you know, 20 different investors are already investing in 20 different competitors and it's super crowded, well, you're not going to get uh, as much of an investment, if at all. So that's really what, that's where we approach it so far as investment. The rest of it is due diligence and it's yeah. based on steps one and two, buckets one and two. Uh -huh. if, you, if you're not passing IP due diligence, if you're not passing the FTO and all of the in-licensing, out-licensing due diligence, and then we'll talk about regulatory, but if you don't have regulatory due diligence totally captured, you're probably not going to get a good investment. Yeah. So that's just how we tackle that. Well, I like that the 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 perspective that you bring, I think, is is um, externally focused in terms of um, when when people are developing the the new technologies, they tend to be inwardly focused trying to solve the problems that they that they're trying to tackle. Uh, but considering their value from the perspective of the investor and what the puzzle what puzzle piece there would be. It's it's such an important step and something that's that's um, easily overlooked for the people that are in in the um, solving the problem. So it's I think it's a fantastic advice. Um, tell me tell me about the regula regulatory uh, perspective. Yeah, and, and this is again th this is all very complex, uh, but you know, you can summarize it in a couple of different ways. Uh, if you're S so SAMD, let's let's just talk about medical device clearances. Uh, there are generally two approaches. One is an abbreviated pathway, 510K in the United States, or 510K de novo. You can you know, add on breakthrough uh, designation if you want to do that. Uh, the other is PMA, pre-market approval, very expensive. Uh -huh. uh, one pathway, the first pathway, is reliant on somebody else's safety and efficacy uh, yep. data, um, mostly, mostly uh, safety you have to generally prove that you're effective, but mm -hmm. you can piggyback on other people's data. That's really where 510K generally goes. Um, the other part, if you don't have uh, any safety or efficacy data, you're more likely to go PMA, pre-market uh -huh. approval, uh -huh. where you have to generate your own safety and yeah. efficacy data, very expensive. You're gonna have to create a, a you know, you're going to have to join the ecosystem of contract researchers and contract manufacturers to really generate that safety and efficacy data to get PMA. Yeah. Um, and then you're looking at the difference between class one, two, and three uh, devices. So you can imagine the um, more you're impacting a subject's or a patient's safety, yeah. uh, the harder it is going to be to get through uh, the FDA and its worldwide equ equivalents. So one of the first thing is, and again, th this approach, this, all these buckets are interrelated. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that if you're going to go 510K, there's some predicate out there uh, or something near you that uh, you can piggyback off of mm -hmm. you can um, kind of mirror yourself against it and make a comparison and gen era make sure that the safety and efficacy data that has been created previously 
uh, is relevant to your mm. device. Mm. You can imagine that, you know, so we already talked about you don't want to be infringing the patent holder for the predicate device based on your first sale. Yeah. Okay, so, so choose a good predicate. That That's, you know, uh, ad advice number one. But also, if you've got safety and efficacy data for a 510K, does that data not also enable, potentially, your invention? Mm -hmm. If somebody has already uh, greased the skids for your invention uh, and you're improving on somebody else's safety and efficacy, why not throw that into the patent application as well? Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody has already proved that a related device that you're improving upon is effective, well, that's a great thing to put into a patent application because it helps with enablement. It helps with possession of the invention if you're claiming an improvement on that predicate. So it also goes to the licensing. So if you're already looking at safety and efficacy data for the regulatory approval, well, look for the patent that um, covers that device that's both safe and effective. And that is something that you wanna consider whether you need to in-license or not. So everything works together. PMA is interesting because you're saying you're new. Think, think about this. You want to be new, as new as possible from the patent perspective, but you don't want to be so incredibly crazy new that you're, sa you're not safe and not effective. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't want the FDA to look at this and wait, that, that's too new. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so there's, there's this crazy, it's a, it's a game. So Felipe, this is another game. Yeah. You have to really balance how new you want to be. Hmm. You want to be just new enough to get a patent issued to be novel. Hmm. You, you don't want to be so new that the FDA is going to look at you like you're nuts. So, so you really have to balance it. And, 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 and you really, you have to talk the same language. So, so the, the pre-sub, uh, all of the submissions that you're making with the FDA and its equivalents, it, it can't be so disparate from what you're providing in other writing, including a patent uh, application or a patent. They have to be linked in a certain way. And, and that's what a lot of startup companies and even a lot of attorneys, they, they don't put that together. Yeah. And so really advice number two with respect to regulatory is make sure you're new, but not crazy new. Yeah. Just, yeah, just sync it up. Make sure you're new enough to get that patent, but not so new that the FDA considers you crazy. Mm. Yeah, that is a another pro tip. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. tough stuff. This is right? really tough yeah, no, you really need to know the the landscape and what's happening and where where things are at and and find find your niche. Um, this is this is awesome. This is awesome. Um, <laughs> tell me tell me about the the post uh, post market aspect. Yeah, so so there are a lot of different aspects to this. So uh, you can imagine that if you are having to do some vigilance, let's yeah. just say you're on the market, so you've gone. Uh, You've gotten your patent. The patent claims cover the invention that is on the market. You've uh, gotten all the licenses you need to have, uh, so you're not infringing your competitors, and you're you have freedom to operate on the market. You've gotten the regulatory approval 
and all the resources you need to label and market a product. Well, there could be some vigilant steps that you need to follow up with respect to safety. So you can imagine uh, in this space, sometimes there are resellers, there are distributors. If you're going to go worldwide, um, you can imagine that the vigilance in, say, um, uh, Japan or Korea, they have very tight standards on how you can uh, market and sell uh, SAMD or any device for that, uh -huh. for that matter, um, versus some, some other country that's more relaxed. And I can't think of a, a good example. Maybe the United States, maybe that's a good example. It's a bit more relaxed than, than Japan and, and Korea. Not much, but a bit more relaxed. Well, you want to make sure that uh, if the vigilance, let's just say there's a recall in the United States. Well, who's going to tell the Japanese that? Yeah. So, okay, that's a post-market consideration. How do you um, share data once something is on the market? It could relate to safety. Uh, it could re relate to other important things. Uh, and let's just say that uh, we discussed earlier, patent claims uh, have different scope in each country because yeah. every country's laws and regs are just different. Okay. So let's just say that uh, you're just fine in um, China because you've got a very broad claim in China and you're able to enforce the patent in China uh, and you, you're keeping the infringers at at bay. However, we discussed in the United States, you're probably going to get a narrower claim on the same invention. Well, you've got a bunch of competitors that um, are going to be working around the invention in, in the United States because the claims are narrower. Yeah. If that competitor in the United States started selling it in China, well, they're probably infringing the patent in China. Huh. Look, you've got to just figure out um, the patchwork and the scope of each of these claims throughout the world, figure out your litigation and, and defensive strategy based huh. on that pat patchwork of, of patent claims. Another thing is product liability. So in the United States, we tend to sue somebody else for anything at any time we want to. Uh, somebody breathed on me. I'm suing you for breathing on me. That's an huh. assault. I mean, it's just, it can be crazy here in the United States, uh, but maybe less so in, uh, in China or Japan or Australia for, yeah. for that matter. So um, you can imagine that if um, somebody is put on notice in the United States, uh, whereby a certain part or a certain component or the way that um, uh, output is being generated in a certain way with these inventions, if there is some liability in the United States associated with that output, with that SAMD product, well, maybe that impacts Australia. Maybe uh, if there are different laws and regulations that need to be analyzed with respect to the uh, liability in Australia, in this hypothetical, for selling that product, that's got to be looked at as well. So. Post-market strategy is, is a lot about litigation. It's a lot about sharing data. It's a, it's a lot, in fact, it's mostly about litigation avoidance. Yeah. So it's about communication throughout the world, uh, how you're going to be doing things differently in each country. And that again is complex.
hundred percent. So complex, and and um, I am so impressed and so grateful that you've been able to summarize and simplify such a complex uh, topic for us. Uh, I I had I have um one uh, one last question. I know that we're a little bit over time, but I, I with I wanted to ask you about the. Um, some of the more interesting applications that you're seeing in your space or anything uh, that you would like to see because, and, and the reason why I ask is because uh, as we we're discussing, software is a medical device, telehealth, like it, it was, you know, um, an area of such growth uh, as a result of the pandemic and, and you're right in the midst of it. So um, is, there, is there anything that has been really exciting for you, uh, really different or anything that you would like to see? Well, well, the cool, the coolest thing that I've seen is AlphaFold. Yeah, uh, I mean, isn't that insane? I mean, so I, I've done a lot of work uh, with brilliant scientists who they some of them took decades to generate three dimensional structures of proteins, and now you've got Google or or was it DeepMind? I think. Coming yeah. out with an algo within a minute or two, oh. it'll take a linear sequence of a of an amino acid or a, a polypeptide, and it instantly in three dimensions fold it up. So now you can do drug discovery. You can do uh, three dimensional modeling of all of these ways that uh, that folded protein might interact with other proteins in the human body. That's insane. So that's the coolest thing I've seen in years. I, oh, I cannot yeah. believe that with all of this uh, data and with with this algo, whatever Google's doing, that's insane. Super impressive. Then, then the the other thing that you know, I'm seeing, and again, you know, because I focus on life sciences and healthcare, you can imagine that the data, the patient data, mm. uh, it's really hard to come by. And this is one of the kind of, this fits into the licensing bucket. How do you get this patient data? Uh And, and then on top of that, how do you protect the privacy of those patients? And how do you do, how do you protect the privacy of those patients in each different country? GDPR in Europe, HIPAA in the United States, and every country has different privacy regs, depending on what, you know, what, uh, so personally identifiable information, PII or Protected health information, PHI, that's how we talk about it in the United States. It's crazy. The, the regs on that are just insane to get through. So you can imagine with, with the difficulty of getting that data uh, and trying to protect that data and utilize that in your algo and try to exclude your competition for utilizing that patient data in a, a similar way. What, what we're finding is our our Clients are using smaller and smaller data sets or or different combinations of smaller data sets Uh to to generate better output. And so what that does is it's requiring, I mean, here's the technical solution to the technical problem from the the patent side. You're finding different ways of meshing the, uh, or stitching together the different data sets. You're looking at different ways of pre- Processing that data so it can be utilized in the ish, uh, in the engine a bit differently, hopefully in a novel and non-obvious way. If you want to get a patent, maybe there's some post-processing steps. Maybe there are a number of different ways where you can generate output. 
But really, it's based on smaller and smaller data sets, which are requiring uh, your algos to be uh, essentially much more sensitive and much more specific. Yeah. Uh, you you based on smaller data sets, uh, you're having a higher likelihood of generating uh, false positives and false negatives, which uh -huh. you want to reduce, uh, of course. But newer algos are being developed and new engines which combine these data in novel ways. That's what we're seeing, and it's uh -huh. the data is getting smaller and smaller. The correlations amongst all the data are more and more brilliant. Are uh, the inventors are amazing. They have amazing minds. And that's where we're seeing things going, which is great for patentability and, and getting you know enhanced valuations, better licensing fees and better royalties. Uh, but as I said, here's the double-edged sword. The newer you are, uh -huh. the harder the regulatory it is. So that's where we're seeing it, it going better patentable stuff but harder to get through regulatory and that's just where we're it's just going to get worse and worse from reg and it's going to get better and better for patentability yeah 100 percent i uh i love i love that perspective and a lot of what you described um i i identify strongly with <laughs> in terms of um in my in my day job of using ai in healthcare and around the patient data, the, the privacy, combining different data sets, working with less data, um, thinking about what, what is new and what's novel, what's protected, what can be protected. Um, man, this has been outstanding, <laughs> outstanding. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I really, I can't, I can't thank you enough uh, for, for sharing your perspective, for um, opening our eyes to, to everything else that we should be considering outside of the, the problem solving. It's, it's how do we take this to, to the world and make it a reality. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. I, it, was, it was a blast. Uh, thank you, Felipe. And again, thank you for creating this forum. It's totally cool, love it. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.